I was speaking with an acquaintance of mine this past week, uh, an elderly gentleman, and we were just sort of talking about life in general, uh, when he said to me, you know, the older I get, the more I find myself spending time focusing on the things in life that matter the most. And then we went on to talk a little bit about how our perception of, of what is most important sometimes changes as we get older, because we can easily go through life, especially I think in this culture, focused on what other people think about us rather than what God thinks about us. We can go through life focused on what other people want for us and from us rather than what God wants for us and from us, uh, focused on what other people say is most important rather than what God says is most important. And all of that profoundly affects the way that you live your life because what you focus on is what you follow. If you focus on money, you will chase after money. If you focus on material possessions, you will chase after material possessions. If you focus on a physical pleasure, you will chase after whatever makes you feel good. If you focus on physical appearance, you will chase after whatever you think makes you look good, right? If you, uh, if you focus on having security in your life, whether that's financial security or relational security or whatever, you will chase after whatever makes you feel secure, right? What you focus on is what you follow, which is why so many professing Christians have such a hard time following Jesus because their lives are not focused on Jesus. The truth is sometimes I focus my own life on other things more than I focus on Jesus. In fact, we're probably all guilty of that at times in our lives. And, and if you're a, a perceptive person and, and self-aware at all, it doesn't take long to recognize at those times in your life that you're actually following something other than Jesus Christ because what you focus on is what you follow. And the, the irony of that is we focus on other things when we don't truly believe that Jesus is enough even though he's the only thing that will ever be enough. So if, you're, if your primary focus in this life is material wealth, whether you realize it or not, you're not fully trusting Jesus to supply all your need. But the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, Psalm 24, 1. And if your primary focus in life is your physical appearance, then you don't fully trust that you were made in the image of God. Yet the word says, I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Psalm 139, 14. If your primary focus in this life is personal security, then you don't fully trust that God is in control. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Psalm 27, 1. You see, and, and if your primary focus in this life is seeking pleasure outside of Christ, then you don't fully trust that Jesus can satisfy you infinitely more than anything this world has to offer. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 16, 11. You see, the irony is we focus on this world to provide for us that which can only be ultimately fulfilled in Christ. 
True wealth, true beauty, eternal security and lasting satisfaction because Jesus is the source of all that our souls were created to long for. And yet so often we focus on this world to provide what only Jesus can. And then we wonder why we have such a difficult time following him. Well, it's because what you focus on is what you follow, which means you cannot effectively follow Jesus when you're obsessively focused on other pursuits, including religious pursuits outside of the teachings of God's word, which happens to be the message the author of Hebrews was trying to get across to his audience in chapter three, which we'll be looking at today. As we continue our sermon series, working our way through that letter where many of the Hebrew Christians of the first century were focusing on what other people in their culture were saying about their faith in Christ, rather than focusing on what Jesus himself said about faith in him. And so uh, the more they focused on what the culture said about Jesus, the more they followed the culture instead of actually following Jesus. Why? Because what you focus on is what you follow. And in our culture today, there seems to be an ever increasing notion that if something is popular, then it must be true. When in reality, sometimes what is true is not popular at all. Sometimes it is. Uh, there were times in Jesus's life when he was wildly popular and yet there were other times when he was seen as the enemy of the people to the point they demanded his immediate death, even though the authorities could find no fault in him. Now look, from the very height of his popularity in the culture to the day that same culture murdered him. And every day in between, Jesus never changed. He was exactly the same all the way through. It wasn't Jesus that was changing. It was the culture's perception of Jesus that was changing. And so what was true never changed. What changed was what was popular, which explains how the very same people who were following him in mass one day could demand his execution the next because they were focused on what was popular instead of what was true. And what you focus on is what you follow. Listen, uh, the approval of others is such a powerful motivator that if we don't take great care to stay focused on what is actually true, we will begin to follow whatever happens to be popular whether that's doctrine or wanting a bigger house. The moment you place the approval of men over the approval of Christ in your life, you will begin to follow whatever is popular rather than whatever is true. And I'm telling you, the church is as susceptible to this as anyone else. One of his letters to the church, the apostle Paul wrote, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. Listen to this part. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, 
we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. 2 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2. And when Paul talks about refusing to tamper with God's word, the ancient Greek word, it was written in there for tamper. It's the same word that was used to describe wine merchants who diluted their wine by watering it down. You see, even in the first century, there was pressure on the apostles to tamper with God's word, to water down the truth so as to make it more popular for the masses. And so Paul says, no, thank you. We will continue to openly proclaim the truth even when it's not popular. And I'm telling you, nothing has changed in that regard since. In fact, as Christians today, if we're not very careful, we can become so obsessed with the approval of men that we pay more attention to the culture's perception of Jesus than we do to Jesus himself until what we're teaching and living is actually far from the truth far from Christ without even realizing it, which is certainly evident in much of the American church today where we love to preach messages that are popular to the masses, right? For every message about the wrath of God, there has to be 50 about the grace of God. Now listen, should we preach about the grace of God? Of course we should. But that doesn't mean that the wrath of God that awaits every person who rejects Christ is any less true or any less imminent or any less important. So why aren't churches more urgently and more often warning people about the wrath of God to come for those who reject Christ? It's because that is not a popular message. Nobody wants to hear about the wrath of God. The truth is, I don't want to hear about the wrath of God because it's terrifying to think about. And yet later in this same letter we're studying today, the author says, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews 10, 29 through 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Nobody wants to hear that. It's not a popular message, but that doesn't make it any less true or any less urgent or any less important. The fact is, what is true and what is popular are not always the same thing. And the church today has to come to grips with that fact if we're going to lead people to the truth, even when it's not popular. It's exactly what these first century Jewish Christians were facing as well. And so the author of Hebrews in this third chapter is attempting to draw their focus back to the truth because what we focus on is what we follow. And I'm telling you, it's a timely message for the church today, just as it was then. So let's jump back into the story at Hebrews chapter three and see what we can learn about staying focused on what is true rather than what is popular. We'll begin by reading. The first six verses. Therefore, holy brothers, 
You who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him, who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has, more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So if you've been here the past couple of weeks, you know that in the, the first two chapters of the letter, the author talks a lot about how Jesus is greater than the angels because the Hebrew people revered the angels and he wants them to understand that Jesus is greater than even the angels from heaven who figure so prominently throughout Jewish history. And then as he continues here in chapter three, he goes from comparing Jesus to the angels to comparing Jesus to Moses. Because just as the Hebrew people revered the angels, if, if there was any human being they revered more than any other, it was Moses. In fact, it's impossible for us to overstate the veneration of Moses among the Jews. There's an ancient play uh, called The Exodus. It was written by a third century B.C. author, a poet named Ezekiel the Tragedian. It was uh, cited, the play was cited by Eusebius. He's another ancient historian from the fourth century A.D. And in that a play, Moses is shown a dream where God will place him on a heavenly throne and invest him with a scepter and a crown. Also, the, the uh, first century B.C. Jewish philosopher Philo of Alexandria, he describes Moses as the high priest in at least three of his ancient writings, right? In the, in the hearts and minds of the Jewish people, Moses was as close to perfection as a human being could get, and yet the author of our letter here says that even Moses is inferior to Jesus. Just as more glory is given to the builder of a house than to the house itself, so too Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses. So as Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And then if we back up to verse one, he describes Jesus as the apostle and high priest of our confession, because throughout the Old Testament, the story that is told over and over and over again is that of God being revealed to mankind through intermediaries, people like Moses and the high priests and the angels. And so the author is making the point that all of those previous revelations of God now find their fulfillment in Christ alone. And then if we back up even further, he starts it all off with consider Jesus. And if you read that word consider in the ancient Hebrew, it's the word katanaeo. It means to fix one's eyes or mind upon. In other words, to focus on something. So the author is saying focus your life and your faith in God 
on Jesus Christ because their Jewish culture was otherwise focused on angels and apostles and high priests and Moses and the law. But Jesus, he says, is greater than the angels. He's greater than the apostles. He's greater than the high priests before him and even greater than Moses. So focus on Jesus Christ because what you focus on is what you follow. And then he continues, verses 7 through 11. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart as they have not known my ways as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So these five verses here, or a quote from Psalm 95, also verses 7 through 11, which is a description of the Israelites' rejection of Moses and their wilderness wanderings, their refusal to follow him. Of course, they gave lip service to God. They were happy to claim to be his people, but they always go astray in their heart because they were focused on other things. And what you focus on is what you follow. So the author of Hebrews uses this psalm as basically another way of reinforcing what has already been said in the first six verses to make the point that because Jesus is far greater than Moses, that means the rejection of Jesus is also a far greater rejection than the rejection of Moses and therefore the loss experienced by those who reject Jesus will be far greater than the loss of those who rejected Moses. And so all of this, then up to this point, is building up to the next three verses, which are really uh, the meat of the chapter, at least in terms of, of how all this applies to our lives as Christians today. So let's, let's read the rest of the chapter, and then we'll go back and spend the bulk of the rest of our time today on these next three verses. So we'll read verse 12 to the end of the chapter. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we've come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. And so in this final section of the chapter, uh, the author transitions from talking about the superiority of Christ to the responsibility of the Christian when it comes to following Christ. And so he says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. The phrase take care of the ancient Greek is the word balepo, which among other things means to look at, to behold, to perceive or to look to. In other words, when he says take care, brothers, he's saying focus, brothers. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Don't lose your focus and fall away from God. Remember, 
He's talking to Christians here. First of all, he refers to them as holy brothers in verse 1, then again as brothers in verse 12, and then in verse 14 when he says, for we've come to share in Christ. The phrase have come in the Greek is the verb in the perfect tense form for my grammar geek buddies, meaning their sharing in Christ is something that has definitely happened and continues to happen, continues to be. The point is, these are definitely believers who are being warned not to lose their focus on Christ and stray from the faith, just as the Israelites under Moses gladly professed to be God's people while they were following other gods. And so he says, listen, brothers, you are responsible to stay focused on your faith. Just because you have come to share in Christ doesn't mean you can't stray away from him and experience the consequences of that disobedience, okay? Our faith in Jesus Christ is something we have to actively focus on. Otherwise, we'll focus on something else and end up following something else because what you focus on is what you follow. This is why there are so many professing Christians today who are actually following many other things but Christ because they're not focused on Him. They believe in Him. They believe that His Word is true. They believe in having a relationship with Him, but that is not what their lives are actually focused on. And when you have a Christian who's not focused on their faith in Christ, you have a spiritually unstable Christian. James, the brother of Jesus, describes those who lose focus on their faith as double-minded, unstable in all their ways, like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. James chapter 1. You see, you can have faith, but if your life is not truly focused on that faith, then how well can you expect that faith to serve you when you need it the most? And listen, uh, the way that you find out how strong your faith is, is by going through a crisis. That is when your faith is tested, when times are hard, not when times are good. I've seen a lot of people walk away from the church and from the faith over the past 25 years of ministry. And yet I cannot think of even one of them who left the faith when times were good. They all left the faith in a time of crisis. And the reason they left the faith when times were hard is because they didn't focus on their faith when times were good. It's a lot harder to rely on a faith that you have to revive when a crisis comes than a faith that is already thriving before that crisis comes. This is especially true when that crisis is a direct challenge on your faith Itself. This is what was happening here in the first century church, and it is exactly what is happening in the 21st century church. The relentlessly steady pressure by the culture around us to abandon what is true in favor of what is popular. And I'm telling you, nothing will test your faith more than a direct attack on that faith itself. You see, it's one thing uh, when a loved one becomes ill or a spouse is unfaithful, or you lose your job, when you're facing some kind of difficult circumstance, your faith in Christ will most definitely be tested because, of course, you need that faith to see you through those difficult times. However, 
It is an altogether different kind of testing of your faith when you're facing a crisis because of your faith itself. And that is the very crisis the modern church is facing today, to preach what is popular or to preach what is true, because they're not always the same. And I believe with all my heart, whatever choice we make will ultimately define the direction of the American church for generations to come. In fact, just as we can look back throughout church history, all the way back to the first century AD and see defining moments at points along the way. Moments that profoundly affected the direction of the church, the effectiveness of the church, in some cases the harmfulness of the church for generations after. Just as we can look back throughout history and pinpoint those defining moments, I honestly believe the era of the church that we're living in today will be looked upon for generations to come as one of those defining moments for the church of Jesus Christ. The moment in modern history when the church took a stand, either for what is popular based on the ever-changing sensibilities of our culture, or for what is true based on the unchanging word of God. And make no mistake, whichever choice we make, there will be consequences. I, I'd just rather those consequences come from the culture than from God. Look, that is when your metal is tested. When your faith begins to cost you something, that is when you find out what your faith is truly made of. A shallow commitment to a set of popular beliefs or a deep wellspring of unchanging truth regardless of what other people believe. And I'll just tell you, the time for you to decide what your faith will be focused on is not after your life hits a major crisis. No, the time to make those decisions is long before that crisis comes and the responsibility for choosing truth as your focus is all on you, by the way. You can't blame the church you can't blame your friends. You can't blame your parents. You can't blame the evolution of what is popular in the culture. We don't get a free pass because of what other people believe. God's word is unchanging and it is our responsibility to focus on what is true, which is the only way you will ultimately follow the truth because what you focus on is what you follow. So the author says, take care. Be sure and focus on the faith that you have in Christ. And then he takes it a step further. In verse 13, he says, Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And the word exhort means to admonish or uh, strongly encourage or even to urge someone to do something. So he says, strongly encourage, urge someone in the faith because you weren't meant to walk out your faith alone. All right, so just as you're responsible to stay focused on your own faith, here's a little news flash for the church. You're responsible to help others stay focused on their faith as well. Hey, first of all, listen, there are no lone rangers in the kingdom of God. If you're a Christian, 
None of the options for serving Christ include serving him in isolation. Just go back through the New Testament. From the time Jesus assembled his disciples and sent them out two by two, all the way through the history of the church, you don't find people serving God alone. Even the great apostle Paul, he traveled and ministered with the team of believers. Why? Because God created us to serve him together in relationships with others. So he instituted the church as his primary human agent on earth for ministry, the means by which he directs and guides and leads and ministers and disciples and heals and confirms others into ministry. It's all done through the church. The baptism and the Holy Spirit was given to the church as they were together, not alone, individually. All of Jesus' teachings and those of his apostles were given to the church. The instructions for prayer, healing, prophecy, benevolence, fellowship, communion, baptism, and on and on. It was all given to the church. Why? Because the church is God's primary means through which he accomplishes his purposes in this world. We get married in the church, dedicated in the church, baptized in the church, and put to rest in the church. Doesn't it make sense then that our lives in between those milestones should be lived out in the church as well? This whole concept today, and I hear it over and over again by believers who have left the local church and they'll say things like being a Christian and attending a church are two totally different things. I can choose not to be a part of the local church without it affecting my relationship with Jesus Christ. That is complete nonsense. That's like saying being married and having to live together when you're married are two totally separate things. Well, sure, technically you can be married and not live with your spouse, but you will not be able to maintain a healthy, thriving, growing relationship with your spouse if you live in two different places for the duration of your marriage. Likewise, if you're a Christian, you cannot maintain healthy, a healthy relationship with Jesus Christ and not be an active member of the local church. You cannot. And the implications of that, by the way, could not be any more profound in your daily life because that means if you're not serving other people, then you are not serving God. You see, there's no version of living for Christ that doesn't involve you serving other people through the local church. Admittedly, sometimes that's easier said than done. I get it. Another pastor that I know posted this quote by author Steve Lawson, who said, we don't mind being called a servant until we're treated like one. Right? Serving others sounds good, and it is. But that doesn't mean it's always easy. And yet the primary purpose of serving one another in the church is to build up each other's faith. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Now, listen to this part. 
And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. 1 Thessalonians 5, 11 through 14. This is exactly what the author of Hebrews, who may also have been Paul, is saying here in verse 13. You are responsible to help others in the church stay focused on their faith. This is how we build one another up by admonishing, by encouraging, and yes, by urging one another to be strong in the faith, which is primarily how we serve one another in the church by holding each other accountable to the faith, which also isn't very popular in our culture, even in our church culture today. Don't get me wrong. Uh, we love the idea of community. We love the idea of being together and even serving people outside of the church together. The part we tend to not like nearly as much is having to hold one another accountable within the church to the standards of faith laid out by Jesus and his apostles in the Holy Scriptures. Why? Because that's where it gets personal. That's where it gets messy. That's where it gets uncomfortable. But that is also how we build one another up, by being honest with each other about the faith, by being honest with each other when our lives are not focused on our faith as they should be. It's holding each other accountable to the faith, even when it hurts. And by the way, this goes both ways. Every one of us is responsible not only to hold others accountable in the church, but also to be accountable to others in the church. That means pastors and leadership too, especially. Right? There are no lone rangers in the kingdom of God. We do this together or we don't do it at all. So let's keep each other focused on our faith in Christ, which will ensure that we're actually following Christ, even when it's not popular to do so. Because what you focus on is what you follow. And at times in our lives, every, listen, every single one of us, at times in our lives, needs help keeping our focus on Christ. Okay, it leads us to verse 14. For we've come to share in Christ, if indeed... We hold our original confidence firm to the end. You see, you're responsible to stay focused not only on your faith, but on a faith that endures. There are few things more discouraging to me than watching someone who is seemingly strong in the faith walk away from it. And yet it seems every year I have difficult conversations with any number of people who have done just that. They've walked away from the church and from the faith, and invariably in that process, there is a hardening of the heart toward God and his people. And what is noteworthy about that is that every single one of them blames someone else or something else for causing them to walk away from the faith and harden their heart toward Christ and his people. They never, ever take responsibility for their own faith having to endure through difficult relationships or difficult circumstances. It's always someone else's fault or because of something that happened to them. Now listen, if every Christian who was ever wronged by someone else or something else in the church walked away from the faith, 
there would be no church. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, we're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Second Corinthians 4, 8 through 12. You see what he's saying here. Even though we're being mistreated, and by the way, lest you think he's only referring to being mistreated by those outside of the church, there are plenty of passages in Scripture where the Apostle Paul explicitly describes mistreatment he's experienced at the hands of those from within the church. So he says, even though we're being mistreated, sometimes in the worst of ways, our faith endures because our faith is not dependent upon the performance of people who fail us continually. Our faith is dependent upon the person of Jesus Christ who never fails us. The 19th century Prussian evangelist George Mueller once said, to learn strong faith is to endure great trials. I have learned my faith by standing firm amid severe testings. You see, the real problem facing the church today is not when Christians fail. It is when Christians give up. We all fail at times. Every single one of us fails. We fail God. We fail each other. We fail ourselves. Failure at times is inevitable. Surrender is not. Failure is an unavoidable reality. Surrender is a choice, a choice that only you can make to give up on your faith in times of failure, whether someone else's or your own, or to endure to the end. You see, Jesus has never given up on you, so why should you give up on him? When people fail you, never surrender. When circumstances fail you, never surrender. When this world fails you, never surrender. Listen, when other Christians fail you, never surrender your faith, no matter how deep the disappointment or how hurtful the failure is, never surrender your faith in Jesus Christ. Instead, in those darkest hours, focus on your faith in Christ and he will lead you through it because what you focus on ultimately is what you follow. That's why people surrender their faith because they're focused on their failures instead of their faith. Hey, but Jesus is the source of all that our souls were created to long for, which is why focusing on other things in this world to provide for us what only he can always comes up short. It's why so many professing Christians have such a hard time following Christ because their lives are not truly focused on him. Why? Because they don't truly believe that Jesus is enough, even though he is the only thing that will ever be enough. 
The true irony in all of that is the fact that if you're a Christian, at some point in your life, you decided to follow Christ because you knew that nothing else would ever be enough. So what changes? Right? When we decide as Christians to follow other pursuits in our lives outside of Jesus Christ, what changed? It wasn't Jesus. He never changes. He's the same yesterday and today and forever. What changes is our focus. It simply starts with what we focus on when we begin seeking the approval of men more than the approval of God, when we become more concerned with what is popular rather than what is true, when we pay more attention to what other people want for us and from us than what God wants for us and from us, our focus changes and before long, what we follow will change as well because what you focus on ultimately is what you follow. Now please listen to me. If your life is focused on something other than Jesus Christ today, it doesn't have to be that way because what you focus on is a choice. And so no matter how far you've followed something away from Christ, no matter how far you've strayed from your faith, no matter how deep the disappointment with other people is, no matter how final the failure seems to be in your life, you do not have to surrender your faith. You do not have to walk away from Christ and you do not have to sacrifice satisfy this world. You simply shift your focus back to Jesus Christ and then watch as your life once again begins to fall in line with his. And not only will you notice the difference in your life, by the way, but everyone around you will notice it too because what you focus on is what you follow. And when you follow Jesus Christ, especially when that is not popular. People will pay attention. And only then will the message of Christ truly be heard through your life. So what are you focused on? If not Jesus, don't you think it's time? Let's pray.